Good afternoon. It's Friday, the 1st of December, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today by video link, we have uh, Debbie Evans and Ben Rubin. Uh, thanks for joining both. Now we're going to get started with uh, COP28 uh, taking place in Dubai, of course. Uh, and here is uh, our king, the only uh, world leader to be invited to speak on the opening uh, day. Uh, so there he is, looking particularly glum, as everybody can see. So let's just have a quick look at uh, what he was uh, calling for in his speech. Uh, he's wondering how uh, can organizations, public, private, philanthropic charities be strengthened for the crisis the world faces. So this is very interesting because, of course, we've been talking on the UK column for quite a long time now about the merger of uh, public organizations, private organizations, philanthropic organizations and charities. Uh, and now they have to be strengthened uh, together. Uh, for the crisis that the world faces. Uh, crucial finance flows need to go to those developments which are most essential, essential to a sustainable future. Uh, well, okay, uh, you can <laughs> consider what that means. Uh, vital innovation is accelerated and green alternatives such as renewable energy are deployed across all industries is what he was calling for. And finally here, to ensure coherent long-term approaches across sectors, countries and industries. So it's not just about merging public, private, philanthropic and charities uh, together. Uh, it's also about making sure that uh, various sectors, various countries and various industries are all working together on this as well. Um, now on the finance thing, the crucial finance flows, of course, this was also a theme of the COP26 uh, in Glasgow. Uh, and it just, if you haven't re read it yet, have a look at Ian Davis's article here, uh, The Not So Great Carbon Reset Part Two. And he's talking about uh, COP26 in Glasgow and the announcement by Mark Carney uh, of the, and Prince Charles, by the way, of the uh, Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Uh, it was originally launched in April 2021, but got its uh, real launch at COP26. So have a read at that article if you haven't read it already. Now, I uh, originally had decided I wasn't going to impose uh, Prince, any of Prince, Char sorry, King Charles's. Uh, uh, speech uh, from the COP28 uh, on our audience today, but uh, actually uh, we do need to. So if we could get the, the uh, Charles video up and let's have a listen to this. Records are now being broken so often that we are perhaps becoming immune to what they are really telling us. When we see the news that this last Northern Hemisphere summer, for instance, was the warmest global average temperature on record, we need to pause to process what this actually means. We are taking the natural world outside balanced norms and limits and into dangerous uncharted territory. We are carrying out a vast, frightening experiment of changing every ecological condition all at once, at a pace that far outstrips nature's ability to cope. We are all connected, not only as human beings, but with all living things and all that sustains life. As part of this grand and sacred system, harmony with nature must be maintained. The earth does not belong to us. We belong to the earth. So you'll notice the use of the word sacred in there, for example, uh, and that final uh, phrase at the end, 
the earth does not belong to us, we belong to the earth. So where did that particular phrase come from? Um, well, if we bring this on screen, this is International Mother Earth Day, and this is United Nations thing. Uh, the, uh, the UN proclaimed uh, April the 22nd to be Mother Earth Day, and this originated in 2009. Uh, and uh, at that time, uh, well, the originator of the quote that, that King Charles has just used was Evo Morales, uh, the Bolivian president. Uh, the earth does not belong to us, but we belong to the earth. This is what he had to say. And of course, this is, uh, this is Gaia cult, uh, or if we're thinking in terms of South America, uh, Pacachama is the word that is used. So let's just have a, a quick look at a, a trailer for a documentary on Pacachama. Madre Terra per gli indiani è ciò che ci ospita, la madre che ci dà da vivere. Io e le piante, io e il cielo, io e gli animali, io e le acque, io e le montagne. Io sono non solo una parte di un sistema intrincato di relazioni con assolutamente tutto quello che esiste, dalle stelle fino ai microbi. Non è la terra che appartiene all'uomo, è l'uomo che appartiene alla terra. Le persone si accorgono che c'è, è necessario, deve esserci un altro tipo di consapevolezza e questa consapevolezza per adesso è un desiderio di consapevolezza, non c'è ancora, non c'è ancora. So uh, I apologize, I mispronounced that. It should be pronounced pa uh, Pachamama, of course. And uh, th they are calling for an Earth uh, manifesto, as it were. And th this type of uh, narrative is all over the internet. So here's another example of it, uh, Pachamama, Mother Earth. Uh, and this is from uh, uh, you know, somebody from the National Research Council in Argentina. It, th this particular aspect of it is quite South American. But I want to bring uh, this article on screen uh, this is on the Mercator website. Uh, the headline is The Environmentalist Cult uh, Demands Human Sacrifices. This is by Augusto Zimmerman, and he is uh, a lawyer. He's professor and head of law at Sheridan Institute of Higher Education. Uh, he's also a former associate law dean at uh, Murdoch University and former uh, commissioner with the Law Reform Commission of Western Australia, and the lead author of a book called Foundations, or, or a paper called Foundations of the Australian uh, Legal System, History, Theory, and Practice. So. Uh, he's looking at this from a legal point of view, but uh, he says the modern environmentalist movement is often compared to a religion. And remember what King Charles said, sacred. Uh, indeed, a, number, a great number of environmentalists are Gaia worshippers who perceive Mother Earth as a living entity. These individuals possess an ap apocalyptic view of the world and their approach to the environment is ultimately associated with the worship of nature. Uh, we've come to the point that even a new hum human life is seen as a threat to Mother Earth, where some candidly contend that new babies represent an undesirable source of greenhouse emissions and consumers of unnatural resources. And of course, this, uh, this belief is all through our media. If you've ever seen the Channel 4 series Utopia and the final episode of that, uh, they absolutely express this, uh, this view that a new baby is a threat to Mother Earth. And he goes on to say, uh, Augusto Zimmerman goes on to say, uh, foregoing children and even having an abortion is thereby promoted in Australia as environmentally friendly, while childless women 
are doing their bit to reduce the carbon footprint of civilization. This type of thinking is reminiscent of the ancient pagan religions. History teaches us that some ancient civilizations killed their children to change the weather. They used to practice child sacrifice to appease their gods in an attempt to court their good graces. Those primitive peoples uh, believed that through human sacrifice, the forces of nature could be coerced in their favor. For example, the ancient Aztecs honored their gods by killing people in a field with arrows so their blood might fertilize the land. We should be deeply suspicious, he says, of any argument that employs language that refers to humans as an invasive virus, a plague, or even a problem that needs to be resolved. Some environmentalists even lament that neither war nor famine are capable of reducing the population enough and prefer the arrival of a deadly virus to prey on the innocent. This type of argument betrays an apocalyptic desire to uh, bring death and destruction at a large scale. It is a type of religious thinking that reveals a sinister desire to eliminate human beings in search of some utopian small number of sustainable survivors. So um, I'm going to say that the use of the phrase that uh, King Charles used at the end of his speech is extremely significant. Um, and uh, it, it is religious in nature. And I think it very much gives away what he believes uh, is the answer to the climate change uh, issue. So Ben, let me welcome to the program. You've got more on this. Absolutely. And um, is it just me or is everyone else feeling a little bit climate anxious at the moment with all this propaganda floating around? And, and actually, it turns out it's not just me who is frantically Googling climate anxiety. That search term is shot up by 565 percent over the past year. And it's absolutely everywhere, actually. If you go onto LinkedIn, you go onto Twitter, you can see the people who are buying into this narrative are talking about climate anxiety. So again, it's one of those neuro-linguistic self-fulfilling prophecies, I believe. Yeah, we're being made anxious and told that everyone else is anxious as well to drive up the levels of anxiety. But fear not, of course, the UN are here to help. Uh, as we've already spoken about, COP started yesterday. Uh, this is the UN's flagship climate change conference. It's in its 28th year. It's actually a milestone year. They're describing it as because it's the conclusion of the first global stock take, which is essentially a full system global audit of all of the activities that are being undertaken to address the climate crisis. Right. This is a, a really significant piece of work that they've undertaken. Uh, and the event is huge. Right? I think this is really unprecedented when you look at the sheer scale of it. Um, first of all, it's going on for 12 days. You know, this is a, a really, really long period of time to be, to be gathering together uh, this many people where some estimates of saying 200, maybe 300, even 400,000 people are going to be attending this event from 197 countries uh, and uh, including representatives from the EU. This is completely unprecedented. They're bringing together uh, civil society, global corporations, in particular, big significant businesses. So WEF partners, for example, NGOs, the big consulting firms are all in on the game. And this is essentially a racket. Right? This is a marketplace that's being created uh, as people making a lot of money on this. Uh, there are already calls now ahead of the uh, event for five times more money to be invested. So they want a huge increase in the amount of funding. They're talking about increasing investment flows between the global north and the global south. Those two terms are, are becoming much more prevalent, as is this uh, idea of climate justice. 
So developed nations in the north, apparently we've already had our fair share of climate emissions. Therefore, we need to reduce our expectations about living standards. And actually beyond that, we need to be directing funds, directing investment to the global south in order to rebalance the system. Right. And all of this being controlled centrally, uh, they're going to use AI to achieve this. They're absolutely going to be using regulation and the regulatory agenda to force investment funds and force listed entities, listed corporations in particular, into action based on uh, the, um, uh, 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 the, the the criteria set out for, for impact investment, for responsible investment, right? So this, this is a highly coordinated global effort to ultimately to force a whole bunch of prepackaged solutions uh, down onto the global population. I, I said a minute ago that this is a long conference. It is. It's 12 days. But the idea that any real discussion is happening here is completely fanciful. This is basically the distribution of, of marching orders, I believe. Uh, who else have we got? So um, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, he's been talking about this a lot on Twitter, as you'd imagine. He's urging the G20 to deliver an ambitious, credible and just outcome at COP28. There's that word again, just. Um, he's also uh, so concerned. He actually flew all the way to Antarctica. He's gone full Alan Partridge and done a photo shoot with a load of penguins. Uh, he's exhorting the global population to protect our common home. So there's a, a, a real push here. And actually to get, to get a proper insight into what's going on at COP, let's hear directly from Simon Steele, who's the guy running the show on the ground over in Dubai. This year's climate conference comes as the crisis enters a new phase and shows its full force, harming billions of people and costing trillions. Now everyone is on the front lines. No country is immune. Yet most governments are still taking baby steps when bold strides are urgently needed. In Dubai, governments must agree what bolder actions need to be taken and how to deliver them. The climate crisis is hitting every country and every economy. No country alone can fix it. But climate action is a chance to unite around a common cause, survival, justice, prosperity. At COP28, it's time for us all to get to work. I think he sounds a bit panicked, actually. There's a, a real sense of urgency there, and I don't think it's for the reasons that he's saying. You know, so this is a time for action. We must decide. Everyone is on the front lines. This is talked about in terms of, 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 of a war, of a global conflict. We need bold strides. We need bolder actions. We've got to agree exactly what we're going to do. We've got to unite around a common cause. Um, and uh, we're already seeing this play out. So all of the assets of the media are being deployed to promote this agenda. We've seen a whole bunch of celebrity stuff going on. It's very like COVID, actually. It's the same playbook, right? They bring the celebs out to sell the message to, to the common man, right? So there's a full onslaught here with Olivia Coleman, the actress who's transformed herself into Olivia Colmine, get it? And then Joe Brand on the right there, translating all of that terribly complicated science into moron for you. That's essentially what her role has, has been here. I'm not going to show the videos. We'll, we'll put some links to the show notes in the show notes. Uh, but I am going to leave you with this absolute gem 
from Joe Brand's recent appearance on uh, Good Morning Britain, which I think sums up the science on this particularly well. We often have climate change discussed on this programme. We yeah. do often talk about it. We, on this programme, we don't need a comedian to interpret it for us. How dare you? We've got Laura. We have Laura. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, it's all about simplifying it. And that's what these stripes all behind me are all about. They're the stripes from Ed Hawkins. And they look at how Earth was cool and how it's slowly been warming in the last 10 years, the 10 warmest on record. And this is the issue with this rapidly warming planet. Thanks, Laura. Science, don't you love it? Uh, but this stuff is already uh, beginning to bite. So, you know, we've actually seen... Scotland's only oil refinery uh, announced to be closed this week. Hundreds of jobs are at risk. This is Scotland's largest manufacturing site, the only operating crude oil refinery in Scotland. And that is, it actually supplies over 80% of Scotland's fuel. It's going to close in the next 18 months. Huge job losses. That's actually 4% of Scotland's GDP. So this is very real economic and human impact that we're already seeing. And you can expect this stuff to dial up, the floodgates are about to open because apparently the only solution to climate anxiety, this idea that people are being consistently indoctrinated with, is climate action. And that means sustainable diets, uh, using renewables to lift people out of poverty, uh, solar apparently making us safer, according to this article in Forbes, and of course, 15 minute cities graciously gifting us more time in our day. So, What's this space? Uh, indeed. Yes, indeed. What's this space? We'll have much more on this uh, in extra, no doubt. Uh, Debbie, let's uh, move over to you. Um, and, uh, well, you've been discussing prevent, uh, and in this case, protect. Yeah, I have. Good afternoon from a very chilly Cornwall, everyone. Um, so what's going on in plain sight in this country? And I do believe that this segment um, that I'm about to give now could potentially affect pretty much every single person in the country. And Brian Garish has asked me to also identify that for veterans, this segment will be particularly of interest, we believe. So I'm focusing on the UK, but I believe that these schemes are being rolled out globally. So if you're hearing what's going on in your country, please let us know. Now, back in 2017, there was a series of three summits. They were called Together Prevail. And it was uh, a US and Arab initiative where they were discussing um, global security, terrorism, peace, cooperation, partnerships. And I just want to show you uh, a very, very quick clip of the then Foreign Minister uh, of Foreign Affairs of the UAE, Abdullah bin Zayed al-Nahayan, who gave a very stark warning to the EU back in 2017. Let's remind ourselves of what he said. And, uh, and, and let me say this in English so you can understand what I'm saying. I have translation. No, I know you have translation, but I'm, I just want to make sure you get it right. There will come a day that we will see far more radical extremists and terrorists coming out of Europe because of the lack of decision-making trying to be politically correct or assuming that they know the Middle East and they know Islam and they know the others far better than we do. And I'm, I'm sorry, but that's pure ignorance. 
So that was back in 2017. And I want to bring your attention to the WEF Global Risks Report 2023, where they've got a nice little diagram. Now, please screenshot this, but just basically the um, economic risks that you can see, these are global risks. The bigger the circle, the bigger the risk. So you've got economic in blue, environmental in green, geopolitical in orange, technical uh, technological, sorry about that, in purple and societal in red. Now, what you can see there is the bigger circles like erosion of social cohesion in societal, mental health deterioration, in fact, severe mental health deterioration. You can see cybercrime, you can see terrorism in orange, but these are all the, the risks that the WEF are warning about. So please freeze that screen because pretty much everything that we're seeing happening around us is happening in that graph, which brings me on to, and I didn't know that this existed, the government response to the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament report, Extreme Right Wing terrorism. Now, this is a committee made up of nine members of, from the Lords and from the Commons. They're all subject to the Official Secrets Act and they're routinely given access to highly confidential information. So let's see who's on the committee. And you can see there uh, a few names that you might recognise. Maria Eagle, um, we can see um, the Right Honourable Bob Stewart, I'll come on to him in a moment, the Right Honourable Theresa Villiers, uh, Sir Jeremy Wright, QC. So that's who's on the Intelligence and Security Committee. And I just want to remind you of one of those people, uh, Bob Stewart, uh, Right Honourable Bob Stewart, because he was recently announced that he was going to stand down from Parliament, but he was found guilty of racially abusing an activist. Now, he's since decided to appeal that, uh, but I just wanted to bring your attention to that was who was on the committee. And as we move further on into domestic terrorism, which is now being called counter-terrorism and under that whole banner of terrorism, we can see that the police are going to be more given more powers to retain your biometrics. Now, this means your DNA, your weight. Remember the future health surveys that were going out? Your weight, your health, um, your height, your DNA, your iris scan, your fingerprints, pretty much everything they're going to be able to use, which takes me back to Prevent. And we have mentioned Prevent before. And PREVENT is a scheme that's run from the Home Office with the Counter-Terrorism Police, ter terrorism police, which is meant to prevent vulnerable people from being drawn in to extremism. Now, just bear in mind that word vulnerable. So let's see who the people are that are rolling out this PREVENT officer. Well, who, who are becoming PREVENT officers? So when we go to look at them, we can see that actually they're in local authorities, in the NHS. Uh, in criminal justice, also in charities. But look at the training for an awareness course. It's only going to take 20 to 30 minutes to complete. To refer someone, you only need to take a 30 to 40 minute course to complete. But if you're going to be involved in the channel or the prevent multi-agency panel, you're going to need 50 to 60 minutes. And a refresher awareness course takes 20 to 30. Um, and they use their own judgment. These officers use their own judgment. So it could be somebody from the local authority. It could be your doctor, which begs the question of how confidential is your conversation with your doctor. But let's look at some of the people that have already been highlighted on the prevent. I'm just going to slip through these very, very quickly. So first of all, we've got Aaron Edwards. He was threatened with prevent for his views on homosexuality. He's a Christian lecturer. Next, we've got the Reverend Bernard Randall, who's a chaplain. 
at Trent College, Derbyshire, he was referred to Prevent for delivering a sermon that told pupils they didn't have to agree with LBGT uh, teaching. He said Prevent appears to have been weaponized to intimidate and silence anyone who dares to speak against the prevailing secular orthodoxy on human sexuality and identity. And if we skip to the next one from the Metropolitan Police, we can see there that a man was stopped at Heathrow Airport, his devices were seized, and then he was suspected for online terrorism offences. And then onto The Guardian, who are very worryingly actually saying that a huge proportion of autistic people are being referred to the PREVENT scheme. And these are people with mixed or unclear or uncertain ideologies. And um, you can just freeze the screen for the statistics there, but they're saying that there's a 535% increase. So we've got a lot of people being highlighted on the PREVENT scheme. Anybody could have their door knocked at any moment. The minister in, is the responsible for this is Tom Tugendhat, and Tom Tugendhat's portfolio as Minister of Security includes countering terrorism, domestic state threats, cybercrime, economic crime, and serious and organised crime. Now, only last week, I keep my eye on what's going on within our parliament, and only last week, on Tuesday the 14th of November, uh, the Draft Counterterrorism and Security Act 215 Revised Guidance for Prevent was uh, put to the Commons. So let's see a short excerpt of Tom Tugendhat and what his, he's upping the game now for Prevent. So let's listen to what he had to say last week. Um, I, I beg to move that the Delegated Legislation Committee has considered the Counterterrorism and Security Act 2015 brackets, risk of being drawn into terrorism, brackets, revised guidance, regulations 2023. Now, if that doesn't keep you up at night, I don't know what will. This instrument, which was laid before Parliament on the 7th of September 2023, relates to PREVENT. PREVENT <coughs> is one of the pillars of the contest strategy. The United Kingdom's counter-terrorism strategy... <coughs> excuse me... <coughs> And if I may quote Sir William Shawcross, who earlier this year published an independent review of PREVENT, PREVENT has a noble ambition. Its aim is to stop people from becoming terrorism or terrorists or supporting terrorism. The PREVENT programme quite literally saves lives. It helps to tackle the causes of radicalisation and assists people to disengage from terrorist ideologies. In simple terms, PREVENT is an early intervention programme that works to keep us all safe. And I am a passionate advocate of this preventative approach. To offer early interventions to those in need, PREVENT itself needs the help of certain frontline sectors who are well placed to support communities to reject dangerous ideologies or recognise when someone they know could be susceptible to radicalisation. This is why we have the PREVENT duty, which is set out in the Counterterrorism Security Act 2015. It requires frontline actors, including education, healthcare, local authorities, criminal justice agencies and the police, to support PREVENT's ambition. It sits alongside other long-established duties on professionals to protect people from a range of harms, such as the involvement in gangs or sexual exploitation. The PREVENT duty guidance, which is the reason for today's debate, exists to ensure that those working on, in the frontline sectors have the information they need to effectively support PREVENT's mission. The Counterterrorism and Security Act specified authorities to have regard to this guidance. I recognise, of course, that PREVENT's mission is not easy. 
The process of, of radicalisation is complex and unique to the individual. A multitude of factors can lead someone to subscribe to extremist ideology or commit terrorist atrocities. Factors often include exposure to radicalising influences, real and perceived grievances, and an individual's susceptibility. The Prevent Duty helps to ensure that people who are susceptible to radicalisation are offered timely interventions before it becomes too late. Hamas's brutal terrorist attacks and extremist exploitation of the conflict in Israel and Gaza serve as a stark reminder as to what happens when extremism is allowed to fester. The disturbing escalation we have witnessed in extremist rhetoric, both online and offline, is aimed at raising tensions, dividing communities and fueling hatred. Delivering Prevent in the best way possible is vital to strengthen our united front against these insidious influences. So very quickly, you can see Prevent being ramped up. The Shawcross Review, which he was referring to very quickly, there's a couple of slides there. And what I did take out of it was the conclusion. And the conclusion said that um, we should be more focused on an approach to extreme right-wing terrorism, which brings me very neatly onto the end of the segment, which is Protect UK. So in Prevent, you're looking at people within the NHS, the local authorities, your dentist, your doctor, um, to, to report with Protect. This is for the members of the public. This is an online platform. So if you just skip to the next, um, I'm sorry, that's, um, I should say it's uh, run by the Home Office and Counter-Terrorism Police. So there you can see the vision to make the UK the safest place. And who are they? They were launched in 2022. They're online. But if you skip on one further, you can see that any member of the public or if you're a business owner, you can go online and you can get the ACT or the e-learning protect um, course. And you get a toolkit as well. This is the latest toolkit for Christmas, a special toolkit for Christmas. And if you jump to the next slide, it'll just tell you who to report to if you're going to a Christmas market or you're going to a shopping mall or a Christmas concert. So this is specific for Christmas. So clearly, we've got eyes watching us everywhere. Indeed. Thank you, Debbie. Uh, now, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, uh, please uh, have a look at community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you can join us there. Uh, that would be very much appreciated. You could pick something up at the UK column shop. Uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, now, the uh, interview that went out yesterday with Steve Gorham on uh, net zero and particularly net zero energy policy uh, is up on the UK Column website now. So if you haven't seen that yet, please uh, watch it and share it. Uh, and then, Debbie, tomorrow uh, again on Prevent, uh, you're speaking to Brian with another episode of No Smoke Without Fire. Yes, we are. And we dig very deeply into Prevent. And um, please do watch it because I really do think it could potentially affect every single one of us. Sorry, I'm losing track of the days. That, of course, is next Tuesday that that's happening. So so uh, at 1 p.m. So have a look at that. But in the meantime, your latest blog is up. Yeah. When is a fracture clinic? Not a fracture clinic, a virtual fracture clinic that isn't even a virtual fracture clinic. And uh, a big write up about the MHRA and also the first wearable smartphone. Okay, thank you. Now, Ben, uh, let's come back to you. And uh, the question is, are children being radicalized? 
That's a very good question. I'm going to start with a little pop quiz for our viewers at home. So what are Tony Blair, David Cameron, Sadiq Khan, the British royal family, two branches of the Rothschild family, the US State Department and MI6 have in common? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it is UK youth charity, My Life, My Say, and its founder and CEO, Mete Choban. MLS partners with the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, NCS, which is chaired by David Cameron, Mayor of London's office, Sadiq Khan, UK Youth, whose patron is Princess Anne, has someone on its board from R&Co Four Generations, which is a Rothschild philanthropic fund managed by Alexandra de Rothschild from Paris. MLMS also partners with Tortoise, the media business working with Lord Jacob Rothschild that I spoke about a couple of weeks ago on this show, and is partnered with the US Embassy in London and is chaired by the CEO of Plexal, which is a UK government innovation lab, which has just recently announced its own strategic partnership with UK Secret Intelligence Services, aka MI6. That is just the tip of the iceberg. And there are a huge number of interests coalescing around Choban and MLMS. Uh, he's been extremely excited over the past few weeks because they've been hosting their next Gen 23 conference at Plexal, which is the MI6 affiliated lab that I mentioned a moment ago. It's actually where MLMS is, is based and they held their annual event there in East London last Saturday. There were over 700 young people attending and there were actually age restrictions in place. So I, I signed up for tickets, but then it transpired that it, you have to be between 16 and 30 to get access to the event. So that precluded me, unfortunately. Uh, for some reason, though, Kamal Ahmed was there and he's definitely over 30 years old, but he was speaking. So maybe there's a gap for that. Um, he's also the host, uh, one of the main hosts at Anthropy, which is the Davos in the UK event that we've spoken about a lot before in this program. And his organization, The News Movement, was co-founded with Will Lewis, who's the incoming CEO of Washington Post. And essentially, he's there to represent globalist policies, World Economic Forum policies, and he is directly talking to the nation's young people. Yeah. Um, Sadiq Khan was also there. He was guest of honour. Uh, he says that young Londoners are the future of our city and that MLMS's groundbreaking work on youth engagement has helped thousand more people have a voice in the democratic process. That's why MLS exists, to increase voter registration and political engagement in young people with a very clear hard left wing ideological perspective. This is all neo-Marxist, critical race theory. Um, uh, but remarkably, Khan did manage to find some ethnic minorities to have his picture taken with. And by that, I mean some of the young white native Londoners. Actually, not, not these people. It's on the previous slide. Um, there's some young white native Londoners uh, who are now technically a minority in London. They're, they're down the bottom right-hand side of the slide there. I'm being a little bit facetious. Um, but we know that Khan and by extension of that MLMS and the people behind it, they don't view native Brits as representative of modern London today. And they certainly don't view it as the future. They're much more interested in diversity, progress. And this is who they're targeting. It's first, second and potentially third generation immigrants from countries outside of Western Europe. And they've got a particular interest in focusing on young women, and that's all captured in their publicly published 
theory of change. You can go to their website and you can read that. It's about the indoctrination of urban youth and about using their youthful energy to essentially overwhelm our political process, right? And meaning within that specifically, our elections. Uh, we've got a London mayoral election coming up next year. And then beyond that, the general election and, um, you know, all elections further out into the future. And the, the idea behind that is to fundamentally reshape British society. Uh, that, that's the only conclusion that we can draw. Um, and in effect, if they're able to achieve what they're setting out to achieve, Britain will cease being Britain at that point. You know, the, and that threshold is extremely close to being crossed. Um, really importantly, uh, I want to stress this, right, because these are sensitive topics. If you are a young person or indeed an older person from one of these communities, these immigrant communities from outside Western Europe, this is not an attack on you. Yeah. Um, these people, Mete Choban, um, this left wing movement is uh, is deliberately pitting us against each other. The rhetoric that they're using is divisive. It's extremely racist. It's designed to cause conflict. And ultimately, despite everything that they're saying, it's designed to serve the agenda of the global elite. Because behind Mete Choban, uh, who do we have? We have Keir Starmer, who's fronting up the Labour Party, who's the, the the current leader of the Labour Party. He'll be leading them into the next general election. And what was Starmer doing on Monday morning, two days after this event, with his entire senior team? So the shadow leader, the shadow chancellor, the shadow secretary of state for business and trade, and the shadow chief secretary to the treasury. They were at an event at the EY offices in more London place in central London to talk about business growth and the uh, the energy transition in particular. So a lot of this was very climate focused. And EY, like all of the other big global consulting firms, is a strategic partner of the World Economic Forum. So this is about promoting their agenda. Behind Starmer, you also have Tony Blair, the man responsible for the deaths of a million Iraqi civilians and a whole bunch of other things that I don't have time to get into right here. So these are the people driving this agenda. And I want to close on a quote from Malcolm X, who um, absolutely had these people nailed down back in the in the 60s. Uh, the, the white liberal is the worst enemy to the black man. They are just a faction of white people who are jockeying for power. They have no interest in actually helping you or fixing any of the problems our society faces. Yeah, they are using you to further their own objectives. And that's what we're seeing here on, on a consistent basis from this group. So this is targeting young people. Well, let's look at uh, somebody else that's targeting young people. Uh, this is from a few days ago. Uh, Pope Francis was very keen to make sure that young people uh, were getting together, listening to what he had to say, and particularly about, uh, well, in this case, this short excerpt, climate change. And now we have Luxel, nine years old, from Africa. Hi, I'm Luxel. Why is it so hot, even if it's already autumn? This is a very important question. She asked me, why is it warm? even though it's autumn. And the question, that is the question. You know why? Because we, 
people do not take care of creation. We do not take care of nature. And nature rebels against us. We need to learn how to care for creation, for creation, for nature, to not dirty it. Together, take care of nature. I can't hear you. To take care of nature. Because nature is our future. Thank you. You've got to get the patient young enough uh, if you want to make sure that they are following your particular agenda. And uh, so thousands of children uh, at the Vatican to be, uh, well, told what to think. Uh, Debbie, uh, let's uh, move back to the UK then and uh, the NHS. Yes, let's. Let's go and see what Victoria Atkins, our new health secretary, has been up to because she's feeling very pleased with herself because she's managed to get the consultants to agree to uh, well, what effectively could mean nearly an increase of £20,000 on their salaries. So she's looking very pleased with herself there and it looks like the end of strike action. However, before she gets too pleased with herself, she might like to speak to the RCN, who were very unhappy, and they're saying that because of the disparity, um, that it's likely now that nurses will go back on strike. So where you win on the roundabouts, I guess you lose on the swings. So I think she's got a tough time ahead of her, as have the nurses. Um, and a little bit of a warning here, um, everybody. Uh, does a patient have a penis or vagina? Now, this new nonsense transgender form is going to be filled out by doctors. Um, it's using a £450 million IT system. It's going to ask them their sexual orientation, their gender assigned at birth, preferred pronouns, if they've transitioned or if they're wishing to transition in the future. And they're asking for staff to fill in organs that the patient has. Now, to me... This almost sounds like an organ inventory, to be honest. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that. And I'm afraid we do have to just very quickly touch on the COVID inquiry. Um, and there has been a lot going on in the COVID inquiry. Um, you can see that Michael Gove's apologised. Sir Patrick Valance wasn't consulted about the eat out. Chris Whitty's revealed tensions. Dominic Cummings has got the knives out. So let's look at Michael Gove a little bit more deeply. He said that the virus was man-made. He got told off. And he actually got told at the inquiry that this was not the place to discuss it. Well, if this isn't, I'm not quite sure where it is. Uh, moving on to Professor Christopher Whitty. He also got a slap on the wrist from Spy B because he, during the pandemic, referred to behavioural fatigue and apparently he was not allowed to do that. And he took full responsibility and said, yes, it did alter the public perception. Then if we go on to uh, Professor Jonathan Van Tam, we can see that actually his family was threatened with having their throats cut, although he didn't produce any evidence from the police. And he did say that he chose to stay at home with the cat. And since then, of course, we've had appearances from Jenny Harris, Matt Hancock, 
all of them um, wanting to seemingly blame each other. And it just seems to be one great exercise in apportioning blame and no, no credence or care is given to those who are bereaved or injured, which I find completely and utterly outrageous. Um, moving on to the NHS are now going to use AI to reduce the pressures on A&E. Now, this, you might think, what are they going to do? They're going to hand out food parcels and they're going to allocate loneliness officers to people. And then if you're lucky enough to be living in Buckinghamshire, you may get a sensor put on your fridge or a sensor put on your kettle so that if there's any problems with your diet or how much you're drinking, the NHS will know about it. And keeping on the subject of surveillance, we've now got Pulse reporting that GP surveillance will be increased after the first case of human swine flu. Now everybody's saying don't panic, and that's what I'm saying too. But of course, it's just another excuse to use surveillance. Uh, keeping our eyes on the Patient Safety Commissioner, um, Dr. Henrietta Hughes, who apparently is listening to patients but doesn't seem to be listening to any of the vaccine injured, she now says that mandatory yellow card reporting is essential. And again, you get that word prevent, to prevent harm. So it's no longer going to be voluntary. She wants it to be mandatory. So if we move on one slide to see what her priorities are for the coming year, I'm afraid you won't see vaccine injury. What you will see is culture change, where she's going to concentrate on the needs of the patient, informed consent, and something called psychological safety, which rang some alarm bells in my head. She's also going to be concentrating on uh, mesh and valparate and teratogenic um, monitoring system um, for pregnant mums and babies. So vaccine injuries will not be her priority next year. Um, and you might have seen this story about Lloyd's Pharmacy. Um, they're closing 1,054 of their community pharmacist branches. They're saying that many of them have been brought up by independent pharmacists, but we'll wait and see. But clearly this is going to be more medicines online. So that's just a, a few little stories on health. Uh, thank you, Debbie. Uh, okay, let's move on then to uh, war. And uh, sadly, the uh, resumption of the war in Gaza has begun. Uh, so Israel uh, began bomb bombarding the place uh, again this morning. Um, they've also been dropping leaflets uh, on uh, Khan Yunus, uh, urging people to leave Khan Yunus. Uh, and the IDF have been very kind uh, because they've created a website. Here it is. Uh, and they are explaining on this website that people uh, need to leave. And uh, they've produced a, a graphic, of a map, where they've divided up Gaza into various blocks. And they're basically going to uh, encourage people to uh, leave certain blocks at certain times whenever they decide they want to flatten the place. Uh, this is undoubtedly uh, the IDF's pretty cynical effort to avoid civilian casualties. Um, so that's what's going on. But we should not forget, and you know, we have covered this, this war in the past, we should not forget that Israel, Gaza, Ukraine, these are not the only conflicts that are happening at the moment. Uh, the Sudan uh, conflict continues, uh, and uh, the uh, um, various charities are now talking about this being the largest child displacement crisis on the planet. So they're saying th 350,000 children displaced between October and November the 15th, the uh, start of October and November the 15th uh, in that part of the world. So uh, that it's, it's impossible to keep up with all the conflict that's being driven uh, around the planet at the moment. Now, the other day we were talking about uh, the NATO foreign ministers uh, meeting. Uh, let's bring them back on screen for a second. Uh, the, following that, then they uh, 
the, the foreign ministers held uh, a session of the NATO Ukraine Council uh, and they issued a statement. So let's just briefly look at what they said here. Allies remain steadfast in their commitment to further step up political and practical support to Ukraine as it continues to defend its independence, sovereignty and territorial integrity within its internationally recognized borders and will continue to support for as long as it takes. A strong independent Ukraine is vital for the stability of the Euro-Atlantic uh, area. So that is uh, not, uh, the rhetoric is not changing. But there seems to be a bit of confusion in Jens Stoltenberg's mind uh, because uh, he is uh, trying to tell us at the closing press conference uh, that uh, Moscow's or Russia's uh, uh, economy is uh, ruined and uh, destroyed and therefore it's mortgaging its future to Beijing, to China. Uh, but at the same time, he's saying uh, we must not under underestimate Russia because their economy is on a war footing. So he doesn't seem to be terribly clear in his own mind about uh, which way it is up. Uh, and then finally on this, uh, I want to mention that uh, not all foreign ministers were on the same page with respect to Ukraine, at least publicly. Uh, so this is a Hungarian foreign minister saying, I think today that everyone can see, though they not, may not admit it, that the plan to defeat Russia on the battlefield has failed. Um, so at least somebody recognizing the reality of the situation. Um, now we should, uh, uh, with respect to, to uh, um, Ukraine uh, joining NATO or not, uh, we should just mention, of course, Henry Kissinger passed away uh, yesterday, uh, 100 years old. Uh, he had originally said that uh, NATO sh should not be accepting or Ukraine should not be joining NATO at any point. But of course, NATO's position has always been that uh, Ukraine should join. Uh, Jan Stolberg very much uh, pushing for this, although perhaps uh, the US administration at the moment uh, saying that several, several caveats uh, are in place for it. But uh, in fact, uh, just to mention that Kissinger did change his mind, uh, I think in May this year. So he's saying that there's a risk that at the end of the day, we'll have a dissatisfied Russia, but also a dissatisfied Ukraine. In other words, a balance of dissatisfaction. So for the safety of Europe, it's better to have Ukraine in NATO where it cannot make national decisions uh, on territorial claims. So he did a 180 degree uh, just at the very end of his life. 180 degree change. Um, nonetheless, the wars continue uh, and uh, nobody seems very keen to stop them at this point. Uh, ben, let's come back to you. There's some big happenings in global media. Uh, before I get into that, though, we're just going to run a quick video here from Project Veritas. I think there's just like a COVID fatigue. So like whenever a new story comes up, they're going to latch onto it. They've already announced in her office that once the public is will be open to it, we're going to start focusing mainly on climate, um, uh, climate like global warming, and like that's going to be our next like um, I don't know like what's the word I'm looking for? Grift. I think is the word you're looking for, Mr. Chester. I think it's a grift. Um, that is Charlie Chester from CNN. He was caught on camera talking about the strategic shift from the COVID panic to the climate panic that CNN was pre-planning earlier on this year. And at the time that film was made, it was uh, being run, CNN was being run by this gentleman, Jeff Zucker, uh, who's reared his head again in recent weeks here uh, with a big glossy piece in the FT, their Lunch with the FT series, asking whether we have a problem with the truth. 
I don't think we have a problem with the truth, Mr. Zucker. But but anyway, the reason he's in the news is that the Telegraph is up for sale. Um, that uh, that um, uh, great institution of British conservative media, uh, currently owned by the Barclay Brothers, um, but unfortunately they owe Lloyd's Banking Group a billion pounds, and Zucker is going to help them out by buying the Telegraph so they can pay off their loan, and he's doing that through something called Redbird IMI. Consortium backed by Sheikh Mansour, the Abu Dhabi leader who also owns Manchester City, very wealthy backer here. Uh, and apparently he's had some interest from the regulator already, Mike. You mentioned something about Ofcom. Uh, yes, well, we'll get, yes, he, he did, in fact. So here is uh, the Ofcom announcement uh, the public interest test on potential merger situation in relation to Telegraph Media Group. Um, so basically, what has happened is that the uh, uh, Department of uh, Culture, Media and Sport have written to Ofcom. Uh, so the statement is that the department has today written to the Barclay family and Redbird IMI, the current and proposed owners of Telegraph Media Group, to inform that uh, there be a public interest intervention notice issued uh, at this stage of the decision to uh, issue the public uh, interest intervention notice triggers the requirement for the Competition and Markets Authority to report uh, to DCMS uh, and also for Ofcom to report uh, and so they are um, asking for responses. So on screen there, if we can put that back up for a second, it says uh, the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport issued a public interest intervention notice. Ofcom is now required to report to the Secretary of State. We must complete our investigation and report by midnight uh, at the end of the 26th of January 2024. So they've published an invitation to comment and they're seeking responses by the 13th of December. So that's where we are on the regulatory issue. Yeah, fascinating. And the, the strategy is to take it global. So I think that there's going to be a big push if they're successful to launch the Telegraph in the US and turn it into much more of a global media brand, a bit like CNN. And really interestingly, like this, there's, there's some fascinating things going along in the background here. Like there's so much happening in the world right now that it's very easy to get distracted away from some of these very significant moves that are being made. And uh, one of them that jumped out at me, look, having looked into the Zucker story, is that um, uh, CNN have, have hired Mark Thompson, the former director general of the BBC, uh, to be there. Uh, no, that's uh, we, we're a couple of slides ahead there. Oh, no, one slide ahead. If you go to the previous one. Um, yeah. the, uh, uh, the former director general of the BBC, he's now running CNN globally. Uh, uh, Thompson actually uh, managed to avoid some very difficult questions about the, the Jimmy Savile saga. Uh, he was running the BBC where, when that whole story broke left the UK, went to run the New York Times, and he's now running CNN. So absolutely fascinating background there. Um, and he's also, uh, from his lofty position in uh, the, the top seat at CNN, also seeking to exert influence in UK local media. And he's just announced uh, an investment, a personal investment in a company called Mill Media, which is a local news network running across the north of England, which is looking to expand into more areas of the UK, uh, which is a bit like a UK column type organization, but a very different ideological perspective on things. So there's a lot going on out there at the moment. Okay. Thank you, Ben. And let's uh, just quickly move on to the immigration issue. Yeah, absolutely. So just uh, some astonishing numbers published uh, over the past couple of weeks about uh, net migration into the UK. 
Uh, so we've got total immigration um, for the year ending June 23 was 1.2 million people, while emigration was 508,000. So net migration was 672,000. And most of the people arriving into the UK were non-EU nationals. So 968,000 people coming into the UK from outside of the EU, right? So we we're talking earlier about the way that the demographics of the country being deliberately manipulated and transformed. This is exactly how it's playing out on the front lines. So this is presents potentially a, a radical transformation of British society. I mean, that's a, a, a significant two percentage points of our entire population just completely replaced over the past 12 months alone. Um, a lot of that's legal, but also a lot of it is illegal as well. So we've got tens of thousands of people coming here illegally. Uh, the Home Office uh, tells you everything that you need to know about the uh, official perspective on this. This uh, uh, advert here for an illegal immigration intake officer, intake units, right? So this is someone whose job is to bring the illegal immigrants into the UK. There's absolutely no talk over here about trying to stop that from happening. This is just the intake unit, and this is someone on 40 grand a year. When I first saw this, I actually thought it was fake because it seems like such a ridiculous thing for the Home Office to be doing and talking about in public, but they absolutely are. Um, and uh, what are they doing with those illegal immigrants when they get here? Well, they're losing them, actually, in, in the tens of thousands. So uh, 17,000 asylum seekers uh, have basically just gone missing. The Home Office doesn't know where they are. Um, and what are they going to be doing while they're in the country? Well, well, who knows? But if uh, Mete uh, Choban has his way, uh, they could potentially be voting in UK elections. And uh, I came across this, someone on, on my Telegram channel very, very helpfully um, drew, my, drew my attention to this campaign on change.org, uh, which is designed to stop government plans for voter ID to make it easier for non-citizens and potentially illegal immigrants to vote in UK elections. And that was started by Mete Choban just after he received his MBE. Uh, so you can see how all of these things are beginning to, to tie together very neatly. Uh, indeed. And Debbie, uh, what's going on with right-wing MPs? Well, that's a really good question because, of course, we've been focusing on civilians and citizens if we have right-wing reviews and perhaps we're called extreme right-wing terrorists. But what about our right-wing politicians? So I found this very interesting. The Royal Holloway University of London teamed up with Servation, a polling agency, to classify every MP as potentially right or left wing. And this survey was le led by Professor Chris Hanretti. Um, so do right wing MPs get reported to prevent, I guess? And what about uh, right wing ministers? So when I went to have a look at Servation, I could see that Servation was indeed a polling company and they use bespoke online and telephone custom research and omnibus surveys, face-to-face -face research, advanced st statistical modelling, qualitative research. So who are their clients, Servation? Well, they, they seem to have an awful lot of clients and I've just picked a few. Uh, I mean, you'll see some very familiar names, The Mirror, ITN, BBC, Huffington Post, uh, the Jewish Chronicles there, um, pretty much everybody, the Telegraph, everybody and anybody. So when you go on to look on the website and you can go onto, your web, uh, onto this website, it's mpsleftright.co.uk and you can put in the name of your MP and you can do a comparison. So I just decided to do the Minister of Common Sense, Esther McVeigh, because as she's Minister of Common Sense, 
where does she sit? And clearly there she's sitting right, right wing. So asks the question, is having a right wing view perhaps common sense? I don't know. But you can check online to see who or which side of the fence your MP is. Okay, thank you, Debbie. And uh, well, Ben, let's just end with a couple of final things. Uh, uh, well, you better explain this uh, this image. Yeah, yeah. So this has been doing the rounds on uh, on LinkedIn. I think I got it from, and I just it's a really uh, beautiful um, uh, summary of the the choice that sits in front of us right now. On the left, uh, you have a beautiful. Uh, probably a Victorian drinking fountain. It's been there for you know over a hundred years. It's 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 a piece of craftsmanship. It it's it's there for the long term. And then on the right hand side, on the same square, right, which is why this is a juxtaposition that that people were commenting on. On the same square in central London, you have the 2023 fake Mayor of London branded plastic piece of rubbish that looks like I could probably tear it out of the ground with my two bare hands if if, uh, if if I needed to. And I just think it's a beautiful um, uh, metaphor for the choices that we have in front of us right now, you know, uh, pro- 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 history, heritage and posterity versus uh, neoliberal rubbish Yes, on the right-hand side. Okay, thank you. And uh, Debbie? Yes, uh, three comparisons there. So if you need stitches in the UK, uh, you could wait 43 months. Your appointment is in 43 months. If you need stitches in the USA, your bill may be $67,000. And if you need stitches in Canada, have you considered dying? And that, of course, refers to the MAID scheme. Um, And then the final one is a bit uplifting, I think. Dear government, sorry, could you just go back one slide there, Mike, just for the dear government? because I do love this one. Dear government, sorry to disappoint you. After all the hard work you've been, you've put into deceiving the nation, but fighting back is now the new normal. So some uplifting fight back. And one final story, a great story for humanity. If anybody missed this, this was 41 miners that were stuck in a mine in North India. And they'd been there for two weeks and all the mechanical diggers had given up. And they literally, they used their bare hands, rescuers, to dig out every single miner. So what an amazing story just to show you that uh, humanity, it, it's, it's still there, a great example. Brilliant. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you very much. Well, that brings us to the end of uh, the news for today. Thank everybody for joining us. Uh, we will be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra, and Debbie and Ben will be with us if you're a UK column member. But otherwise, we will see you at 1pm as usual on Monday. I hope you have a great weekend, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>